<laughs> okay, one more time. All right. I'm April Margulies. And I'm Christopher Tompkins. And you're on the line with the Hype Busters. Welcome. Ready for some real talk on strategic communication? You're in the right place. So, Chris, are you ready for a breaking news story? Absolutely. Let's dive in. <laughs> okay. So this week we are talking about two different news stories. Yes. So one is Ellie Kempner's crisis response, too little, too late, or just right. And also Subway's tuna troubles. Oh, <laughs> Reminding PR pros to monitor for fishy sentiment. I feel like you have probably something to say about Ellie Kempner. What do you say oh, about Ellie Kempner? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. First off, when I saw the story, I was really delighted because when anybody looks too good to be true, it's nice to see that they are. So that kind of gave me a little bit of joy. Because no, she seems I, like so adorable and so sweet and so innocent. When, exactly. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's it, for her, it's like the moment where like, like when Anne Hathaway became annoying. You know what I mean? Like there, everyone has like that turning point. Oh, few. Yeah. And yeah. for everybody who doesn't remember who Ellie Kempner is, she was one of the sort of semi-stars on The Office as the receptionist. And then mm-hmm. she also was in The Unbreakable, Kimmy Schmidt. Mm-hmm. And good luck getting through that a movie for that show. That was a humdinger, if you will. Oh, Lord. Um, yeah. And it was only for Netflix, but it was, it was a humdinger. I see. But going into this, Obviously, this is all the tones of racism, cancel culture to it. And basically, when she was 19, she, she was a, a cotillion. And the organization had racist ties and racist leanings and sexist leanings. So the problem was that she waited to respond. Now, if you read her response, I think she did the right thing. I think she handled it very, very well. Because jumping in immediately on things like this with an answer like she provided a couple of days later would seem completely disingenuous. It's about like five or six slides on Instagram and it's really thoughtful. Mm-hmm. And it actually makes, it makes me think like, oh wow, you actually sat down, you talked about it, you thought about it, you talked to some people about it. It made sense to me. What do you think about it? Yeah, I thought her response was phenomenal. I thought it seemed really genuine and authentic and that it didn't necessarily just feel like she had a publicist write it for her. I mean, I'm sure she had help, but it didn't feel like just a canned response that Mm -hmm. wasn't heartfelt. It had a personal touch to it. I thought if you're accused of, you know, having KKK ties, you're not going to have an immediate response for that. I mean, that's not something you just have at your ready Uh, on a, you know, a different angle. Like I was hardly a formed person when I was 19. I hardly knew who I was. I hardly knew what I was doing. I know this isn't the point, but I don't think it's fair to call somebody in the carpet for something they did at 19 and make them respond to it as an adult, as mm. though somehow they're responsible for the thing that they did when they were hardly a formed adult. I mean, that's, I understand that our culture considers people adults around 18, 19, 20, 21, right? But mm-hmm. I wasn't, I barely knew what I was doing till I was 30. <laughs> like I, yeah. I was a mess. <laughs> like I don't, I wouldn't want to be held to that standard. Yeah, I walked out of the womb perfect. The, the thing with this, <laughs> she has all the trappings of white privilege. 
and she has this persona of being this really perfect nice perfect person yeah and i think those things together really like it's like wow this is a big takedown and i don't think it was a fair takedown and i don't think she actually got taken down i don't no. think she has to vanish for a while i think she can come back on something if someone will hire her and she's gonna be good to go yeah i agree i don't think it'll have a long-lasting impact Okay, so how about Subway's tuna troubles? <laughs> Isn't it the grossest? It's the grossest article <laughs> that I've read. So the article by Sophie Marowitz from PR, uh, News. From PR News. Yeah. So it says something fishy is happening with Subway's tuna. Or is it? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which is so funny. So for people who are not aware, apparently there was a debate on social media after a New York times reporter mm-hmm. sent samples of the sandwich chains, tuna sandwich to a California lab for DNA testing, DNA testing, DNA testing on tuna sandwich. And the lab found that there was no DNA evidence of tuna fish. But what's also really interesting is that Maury Povich came at the very end and said, you are the footlong. And which was the joke I've been waiting to tell. But. (laughs) Oh my God. Wait. So if it's not, there's no DNA traces of tuna, what in the world are they serving? Well, the thing is this. It's overly, 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 overly processed, right? So it's processed to the point where you can't, tell what it is and that's what the article was saying i'm not a big tuna fish buyer in terms of sandwiches no. when i go out it's not something Ew. like ooh, tuna fish it's like i'm not i'm not like 80 the thing is though with this it's really important to monitor your mentions and this is what this article is all talking about it's the social listening element that's really important to both sides of our business i mean you from the pr world and me from the social media digital side, we do this every single day. We have Google alerts, we have listening tools and everything. And as soon as something shady comes out, we put something out to get in front of that story immediately. Yeah. Do you think that a lot of brands are really monitoring their sentiment? Well, I think the issue with Subway is something bigger than that. Possibly. (laughs) I think It kind of goes back to the idea that brands have to actually be doing authentic things so that they're safe and they're communicating authentically, right? So you can't just have something that's so disgusting and so cheap to make your margins that you're serving something without any DNA relevant to tuna and it's called tuna. I mean, like like, that's a business problem. I mean, yes, there's a problem with like, the social side of it but i mean it goes it's i mean it's way upstream right like this is not a this is not totally. a downstream problem this is an upstream problem <laughs> so it's like, i mean i think that's where you gotta mm. good it's a good warning i think and reminder to brands that if you're doing things that are shady to make ends meet and make a profit it is gonna come back to bite you at some point it's just a but matter of time also Time heals all wounds. Remember all the stuff that we've heard about Taco Bell when that all came out, maybe over a decade ago, maybe. And it was like, it's actually, I don't know what it was. It was like something wrong in their meat, like sheep or something, or I don't know. Oh, but, God. And everyone kind of just went, oh, I really like Taco Bell though. And I think Subway has like a 
there's a subway customer. Right. It's either somebody that likes and eats there a lot, or it's the kind of thing you kind of suffer through when you're on a road trip because it's the best option. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So people that are suffering, I think they'll lose those customers potentially, mm -hmm. but they still, what are, what are their other options? Right. Like, yeah. I, well, it's interesting because the takeaway for both of these is that you should be paying attention. And then one is like respond immediately. And the other one is respond authentically. You know yeah. what I mean? It depends on something like this, like, Hey, we had a DNA test and this isn't the tuna. Then that was something I would respond to immediately. But like something that's racist or sensitive or something like that, you should really have the right response to go back. So time is of the essence, but you have a little bit more leeway to kind of marinate, I guess. Do you think it helps because the initial outrage over the KKK stuff and Ellie's case had died a little bit down in two days? Or do you think that that's not part of the strategy? Was it really just more that she needed to actually have an authentic response that was well-crafted and thought out? I think it wasn't a real brouhaha. I don't really feel like it was a big story. I felt like it was a story that, I don't know if it was a slow news cycle or something. It just didn't seem like a top tier news story for me. Yeah. And I think it went away really quickly. So even that she said something, I mean, kind of brought it back into the news cycle a little bit. Yeah, I think if it was like a big brouhaha and it was kind of like headline on GMA, Today Show, all these different places, and they were just like really like getting experts in and, and talking about it day after day, that might've sped things up a little bit. Okay. Or she might've actually done interviews if it was that bad. That's true. I haven't seen anything about that. Mm -mm. Okay. Yeah, I just didn't care enough. <laughs> okay. Well, should we move on to point counterpoint? Oh my God, let's do it. That's my favorite segment ever. <laughs> Jeez. So in this segment, Chris and I will agree to disagree and we'll tell you why. Yeah, you know I will because I'm always right here. So our topic for this week is... Okay, should this make national news? Singing babysitter stuns TikTok after really hard year. It's been absolutely crazy. All right, what say you? I say no. Honestly, I feel like this is partly why the media is going to lose credibility if it doesn't do something different. This is crazy to me. This should not make national. Oh God, this is like the. It sound like me. I know it's like role reversal time. I'm gonna put on my Chris hat. <laughs> and be a little sour <laughs> so I just feel like what, what has the world come to and it's also so evident that the mom of the why was she first of all why was she there if the babysitter was there right isn't the whole point of having a babysitter so you could do other things but she's there with the babysitter the whole thing felt staged to me oh yeah and it was all set up. It did not have one authentic feel to it to me. And then mm. she peppers it through with all these freaking comments about, oh, she doesn't like how she looks in the video. Give her some love, whatever. To me, it was like, this is some housewife's version of trying to make the babysitter famous via TikTok because she has such an amazing voice. And this is the new way of getting her, you know, 10 seconds of fame instead of putting her on the voice. And how well, is she just singing along with like an instrumental version? You don't listen to the instrumental version of the freaking Little Mermaid soundtrack. You like, well, you know, it happens. No, know. it does not. It does the, not just the, happen. It's not Zoe's it, extraordinary playlist. <laughs> I love that show. That's my soapbox about that. What do you think? 
Okay, well, the first thing I want to say, this is, has no bearings on this case, is that there was the word babysitter was so much in this article that I actually went and searched where I could watch Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter is Dead because I really liked that movie. <laughs> Do you remember that movie? No. It's a classic. It's award-winning film with Christina Applegate from like the 90s. Oh my God. Um, yeah, uh, check it out, folks. You will probably regret it. Okay, so I'm actually more on the side of let's keep this. I'm actually going to be positive on this, on, this, <laughs> on, on, this, on this one. I think stories like this have a place in a really negative cycle. I think stories like this really do buffer really hard news, really tough stuff. We're in a time when everyone is super duper sensitive, obviously. This, okay, I completely agree. This is a completely fabricated piece of content, right? But also I've seen news stories where it's like, 95-year-old woman graduates from college and they're interviewing her. How did she get on there? She called and said, I want to be on. You know what I mean? It's like she had someone get it on there and it's a personal interest story. I just, you know, I think it's something like that. I think it's something nice and light. Everyone likes something a little bit heartwarming. It has a little bit of a Disney angle. Just pouring a little sugar onto the mix. Do I find it authentic? No. Do I need to find it authentic? No. It's no one really selling anything. I don't think we're going to be seeing her on America's Got Talent. I think we're going to see her as like singing in one of those shows at Disney World or something. She'd be great at that. Perfect. I see our guests in the waiting room. Should we kick off the interview? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. So this week's guest is Tom Briggs. He's the founder of Epigraph Research and Branding Consultancy, and he's here to chat about best practices for branding from whether you're a startup or you're a, you know, a big marquee brand. So welcome, Tom. Thank you. So glad to be joining yes. you. So I want to know. I what do you want to know, April? I mean, I just jump in. <laughs> I want to know. I want to know why is branding so valued and so expensive? I know that a lot of branding agencies charge a lot. And sometimes my clients will ask me, why in the world is this so much money? What are they doing? <laughs> right? Let's see. How do I answer that? Well, branding is expensive because branding is a big bucket. I mean, there's so much that we set on the shoulders of the word brand. I mean, you think about that and your mind immediately goes to logos, typography, colors. Uh, but beyond that, there's a level you operate where is it aligned with your organizational values? Is it aligned with the messaging that you're putting out in the world? So really, yeah, this word brand is so big and nebulous, but to do it right checks a lot of boxes, not only beyond the visuals, beyond the words you're putting out, but I believe it can really be a core fundamental element of creating a visionary organization that is aligned with the values of your founders, that's aligned with the values of your employees, and can really help sort of differentiate and give you a more competitive place in the market and give you, you know, a clear defensible space. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of those things where people don't understand how much time actually has to be spent in this process. I've seen a lot of people that want to skip the branding process. They think, logo and you know just come up with something and i think that that's really stupid obviously because they don't have a leg to stand on because they have nothing that really shows a value shows a mission what do you feel like is one of the first steps in discovering what your brand truly is i love simon sinek's question you know start with why why are you in business why are you doing what you're 
trying to do? What is that positive dent you're trying to make in the universe? Because if you can step back as a founder or maybe in a conversation with your co-founder, maybe you take a weekend, go get an Airbnb and just really hash that out. Love that idea. If your reason is just to make seven Mm -hmm. figures, exit and go on really sweet vacations. Yeah, that's cool. You (laughs) may have trouble getting people to come along with you on that journey. So I love seeing brand as a driver of value, starting with those values and saying, you know, maybe we're making 100K in revenue now. What values will be true for us as founders and for our employees when we hit a million, when we hit 10 million, when we hit 100 million, when we hit a billion? I love uh, looking at Zappos and what Tony Shea was able to do with that. I mean, their values remained unchanged the bigger they got, you know, I mean, up to the point, you know, beyond being acquired by Amazon, they always stood for exceptional customer service and it saw them through all the way, you know, through their growth cycle. I had even read that internally the brand value was sustained as well, because it was the kind of thing where if you could be hired by Zappos and you had, I think 30 days to decide whether it was a good fit for you as well. And they were really strict about it. If you didn't fit their culture and, you know, you weren't vibing with the existing culture, they basically had some sort of way of buying you out and telling you to go away. I mean, it was like, I mean, I'm saying it in a way that doesn't sound nice, but it was actually very nice. I can't remember all the details now, but I remember reading about it and thinking, wow, that's a brand that has both internal and external authenticity, which is really neat to see. That's such a good point because your values as a founder or a leadership team only as go as far as your people. Are your people bought in? Is this a value that you all believe in? Or, you know, is it just a bunch of platitudes stuck on the wall? You know, in this day and age where everything is so transparent, that's going to come out in the wash. When you ask that why question, how many times does your client say, well, that's why I'm hiring you? It does happen that way sometimes. So at that point, it becomes a conversation and a working session and we'll carve out a week. And I've had the good fortune of working with some really awesome brand leaders who've helped, you know, brands like Nike, brands like Sonos, these amazing brand forward companies sort of define who they are. You know, it, it might not be immediately accessible. It may require some digging. I would say that you need to get to a point where that becomes authentic and, you know, that leadership team can say, oh yeah, that's a value we can own and truly mean that. But yeah, definitely it can always be a process and it's worth investing the time to sit down in a room and do whatever it takes. Your brand values need to be experiential. They may not come out in a sterile conference room looking at a whiteboard. They may come out in talking to your early stage customers and talking to your founder and talking to your investors, really just saying, what are people so stoked on that they want us to do more of? They really, yeah. So there's a few different ways you can get to those. And how do you navigate it when you have those leaders not agreeing on what the vision is or what they think that the values are? I mean, I'm sure that happens too. Yeah, they're big, hairy conversations, right? But they're good ones to have at that stage of the game. Better to know it when you're securing your first round of funding or when you're just sort of defining these things versus, you know, when a crisis comes along. You know, by the time a crisis hits, you want to have everything in lockstep. You want to be a tight team with a common theme because if a crisis hits, as they always do, and you're sort of unsure about this or shaky, you're not going to know what values you're going to stand on. And as a result, you can fall or get set back in your goals, and that can be not a, not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Do you typically yeah. recommend that clients do branding first before they do any other marketing in terms of SEO, social media, PR, et cetera, et cetera? 
but I love doing the values work first because it flows into everything. It yep. flows into your publicity effort with the types of media placements you're trying to get. It flows into your messaging. It flows into your website where you're putting it out there and leading with it. So I find it challenging to lead those efforts or execute those efforts without those consistent values. You can do it in sort of a phased approach, or you can do them simultaneously. You could even sort of use those early efforts as, okay, who is our audience? You know, maybe that evolves. I love, you know, in tandem with solid branding, I'm a big fan of fine audience segmentation. So really getting super granular and naming those audience. It's not 18 through 34 females. It's Molly. Molly lives in San Diego. Molly loves Dutch Brothers Coffee. Molly shops at these online stores. Really building out your demographics and psychographics will go a long ways and getting those very thin sliced. And knowing, I counsel a lot of venture stage companies, your investors are not your users. So have your deck for your venture investors and then thin slice your audiences. And you may need to have a very uniquely targeted message. It's under your umbrella brand, but you have a very specifically targeted message to each of those named audiences. The way you talk to Tammy, the mom, is different than Greg, the empty nester dad. I think that branding should come first, personally. I think branding comes first. And I also think that if you're an existing brand, you can use your channels to do the testing of your concepts. But one of the things I was curious about is sometimes when we're working with clients that are working with branding companies and we're seeing the back and forth where it's like, oh my God, you guys are doing God's work. Like, it's just because I, I, I've seen the conversations and I know how hard those conversations are because you're basically making people look at themselves and then have opinions about visibility and, and what they look like and their optics. So if you can put together the colors for the client and the imagery and the logo and whatever else will go with your package and they don't want to go with your suggestions, they want to go in a completely different direction. How do you inform them that this is the direction that they should go in? Not to go against what they want, but they're looking at something like they're not understanding, they're not clicking into why they need to use those colors. If they're not clicking in, it means on the brand side that I haven't done the work or I haven't shown them the backstory. I remember a few years back, we were doing a rebranding for a technology company with an all-male leadership team. They were based out of Syracuse, New York. They were very much tech forward. And we did a study that showed them the competitors in their space, a color study of here's how all your competitors are looking. And we eventually recommended a colorway that the primary color was purple, which for that team was challenging. But we did the research and we showed them, if you are purple and you're at a trade show, you are gonna stand out from all your competitors. So if you come to the table and show that basis, ultimately you're trying, you know, from the brand side, we're trying to remove it from the realm of subjectivity. If the conversation comes to, well, I just don't like purple, that is a loss because we haven't done the work and said, well, in yeah. this situation, purple is a very good choice. It may be because of competitive differentiation. It may be because, you know, there's deep studies in what color evokes. Maybe we want mm -hmm. to evoke the thing that orange evokes or red or green. So there's a lot of tactical work that goes into it. And the onus is on the branding consultant or branding agency or branding provider to show that backstory and say, trust us, A, we're experts, B, we've done the work, you should really go with this recommendation because mm -hmm. it will make you competitively strong. How long does it normally take to do the full branding process for a company? Longer than you want it to, always. <laughs> Plan <laughs> are, on taking long. Talking? Yeah, it depends, you know. I mean, it can take, for all the work that's needed, I think it would be a rush to do it 
in anything less than a month. And I like a good long quarter to really dive in. If you're diving into customer profiles, you're doing customer interviews, you're really doing your due diligence, you're looking at competitors. Yeah, it takes the time it takes. And I think a good point to kind of mirror that statement is that a lot of companies that are listening and thinking like, oh God, well, I don't want to spend three months doing this. All of the work that they're doing through that branding process is going to save you freaking money. It's going to save you so much money down the road. And also the internal and external communications are going to be so much stronger and salient. Where do you find that people along the way, Tom, like where do you find they kind of get stuck the most? The common pitfalls, one we already talked about was I don't like X. So if you haven't done the backstory... Uh, Another is, well, you can't talk to our customers or we don't know who our customers are. And that's such a foundational piece of, you know, there has to be someone, maybe it's a vendor, maybe it's a a fellow traveler who bought in early, but you really need to have those conversations and have enough of them so that, you know, your sample size is big enough that you're not just getting some aberrant, you know, input. We talked about timelines. It always takes longer, but your branding agency, as you're evaluating them, they should be keeping you apprised of how things are going. If they can't provide you a clear timeline or clear phases of what's going to be happening when, I would take that as a sign of pause. So just do your due diligence like any other vendor. If you're getting weird vibes or if something just doesn't quite feel right, don't be afraid to sort of throw a flag on the plane and be like, whoa, whoa, can we take a step back? It should be a fun experience. You know, brand is fun. Visuals are fun. These are really interesting things to talk about. Ideally, you should come out of your branding exercises with a greater awareness of who you are, who your customers are. And if you're not getting that from your agency, you may want to reevaluate and make sure, you know, the fit is there. Mm-hmm. I have another question that's kind of a follow-up to this because it's something else that I've seen a lot in the branding processes. When I was talking to one of my partners and they were saying that during the branding process, they were supposed to have a call with the core team, which was three people and 10 people showed up on the call. How do you kind of shave people out of that decision-making process that are constantly slowing things down and adding in kind of like the elements that aren't necessary to the process? They're not adding value. They're actually just taking away. It's good to emphasize at the outset that we really prefer one point of contact for consolidated feedback, just emphasizing that, you know, this enables us to operate most efficiently. It allows, you know, the client to have a single brand advocate on their side who's sort of hurting the cats or whatever, and really waterfalling that information. It does take time, there's a little more work, but really consolidating it to one individual on the client side really makes for a better experience, both coming and going. You know, on the agency side, having that locked creative brief, you know, the client needs to be a part of that. There needs to be a playback. So after every meeting that you've sat down and you've had a verbal agreement, play it back to the client and make sure, okay, here's where we're at. Are we truly aligned? You know, we verbally agreed. Now let's make sure that our understanding maps to what we talked about. And it just allows for that consistent documentation through the entire process so that everyone is on the same page. Yeah, it's always about building a case, right? It Um, is, yeah. There's a little bit of CYA involved, unfortunately. And it's not to disparage the client side or the agency side. It just, it keeps everybody on the same page and it allows for communication. Mm -hmm. And on the agency side, you know, you can do a really robust post-mortem then. You know, if a project does go sideways, you can dive in and say, okay, where did this start to go off the rails? How might we avoid that in the future Mm -hmm. and be informed about that? When someone's going through a branding process, when do you feel is the natural point for them to start looking for 
their PR component, their digital marketing component, they're starting to broaden their team and go out. Is it at the complete end of the branding process? You may not need to complete it in full. Uh, once you're sort of feeling comfortable that, yes, this is going to be unchanging, you know, this type of photography or these words or this type of language, that's when you can probably start putting stuff out into the world. Really what you're going for is just that consistency. The fundamental rule of brand is just consistency. It's a consistent presentation of words, images, typography, just mm -hmm. as soon as you can achieve or start to catch glimpses of that consistency, you can start initiating efforts. Awesome. Well, Tom, any questions for us or anything you want to plug? I guess, you know, on the publicity side, what's hot in publicity? What's hot in PR? What should we know or be thinking about as we look at creating brands, creating narrative, creating differentiated organizations? In terms of what the media is attracted to, they obviously are most interested in something that looks professional. Mm -hmm. I think that the more it looks unique and specific, the better. And I think there is a lot of sort of Silicon Valley startup vibe. And it all kind of starts to look the same. I mean, there was an article yes. that somebody wrote and I think it was in Wired or something. And there was an article about how there was sort of a template now for a Silicon Valley startup design. And it was almost a joke because it was so similar. And I think it's important not to look just like everyone else. We actually had a client once who wanted their website done and we were helping them with that and they wanted to look exactly like the competitor that they were mm -hmm. mostly competing with i was like yeah. no so can't do that i think from the digital side getting clients during the branding process extremely comfortable with video and understanding that video is is a little bit more than just talking to camera it's a whole different process so making sure that their video content aligns with their brand and their brand messaging because Let's say I've seen things, not I have clients like that, because that would be incriminating. I've seen things where the company is trying to be super duper cool and they're very slick and they have all these sepia tone images with like light shining in with, you can see the dust through the light and I, I got the visual story. And then they're using animations in their video. Mm. And it's like, what the hell is this? So yeah. understanding that real people do work really well, but getting them ready, to utilize that content because that's what all the platforms are leaning towards in terms of algorithmically being positive for the client. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really, it's a great point. I mean, in this hyper communicated age, there's definitely emphasis on easily digestible content, easily digestible images. And you see that in a lot of different ways. I'm sure you've had clients come to you and they're like, Oh, just make it look like Apple. I love that clean aesthetic and mm -hmm. credit to Apple. They achieved that. I mean, you know, I've, I've heard that enough. I know what that means, but let's run that through your own filter. And if you get a truly collaborative design agency who is willing to walk with you and sort of dive into who you are and what you're all about and give you a really unique look and honestly be willing to, you know, the elephant in the room is spend the money. I mean, don't go to 99 designs for your, for your logo. Huh. Just, just don't, I mean, you're going to get what everyone else gets and you're not going to stand out. Invest in the time and the energy to create a really differentiated brand and you will save yourself money down the road because it will survive. It will survive the ups. It will survive the downs. And if it's truly tied to those core values of who you are and what you're all about, it will endure and you won't have to refresh it in, in three years. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, yeah. Tom. This has been super fun. Yeah. Just check us out. We're on the socials. So hello, Epigraph. If you go there, um, yeah, drop me a line. I'm out in the world. So find me.
Say hi. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, yeah, Tom. Thanks, cool. Tom. Thank Have you. Have a good rest of your Monday. Appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. So, Chris, let's do the cash or trash segment. What are we talking about this time? We're talking about Sprite. Who doesn't love Sprite? Me. Um, Sprite <laughs> is turning scannable bottles into tickets for virtual hip-hop concerts. So is this a, a cash cow for them, or do we think that this is going to be El Trasho? I mean, I'm voting El Trasho. El Trasho? Okay. Doesn't it seem like it's an outdated concept? It's so forced. No, the whole thing feels like, let's be cool and hip and modern and get a hip hop audience. And you're like, wow, you're out of touch. Yeah, dude, Sprite, calm down. I mean, yeah. it's it, it, Sprite's kind of coming off like a little thirsty turtle on this. Yes. And this, doesn't this seem off brand for Sprite? Because I feel that Mountain Dew this seems better with, maybe. Right. Right, Sprite's trying to go in this direction. If it were like tickets to the U.S. Open, that I could see. Tickets to the U.S. Open. Oh, damn, Molly. With my Sprite Zero. I mean, it's still weird. I love that that you made Sprite the Connecticut sister, the Mountain Dew. It's like, what? That's what it feels like. I, I think as soon as I saw the word scannable i was like what it's like i got something the other day and it had a qr code on it and i was like really what do you think about just talking about like just kind of talking here what do you think about qr codes do you think qr codes are past it i mean now that every restaurant has them for the freaking menu yes that's true it's not cool anymore now it's just the normal thing that you have to do instead of getting a freaking menu which is annoying QR codes, though, as a trend, does feel a little like walking with a walker with the tennis balls in the bottom. Like, I don't feel like it's like a fresh, cool concept. Because I can understand maybe for a trade show or something that would make sense. But Sprite and hip hop concerts, like, I, I, I just don't feel like the match is there. And I think it's a desperate ploy to open trash. up their trash pun. <laughs> Yeah, that is All trash. right, well, that was that was an easy one. Okay. That was fantastic, poor, everybody. Poor, poor Sprite. Poor Sprite. You know, who cares? They have enough money. They're in the Hamptons right now. Um, <laughs> with, with their Connecticut sisters. <laughs> right now, uh, Sprite is vacationing with the Kennedys. <laughs> oh, no. And their skorts. They're all yeah. wearing skorts and visors. Oh, Oh my God. Talking about like our interview earlier, this is like branding central. Like this is like coming up with a Sprite. <laughs> Have a go and Chad. That's oh, would you like to see Sweetie, darling? In concert? <laughs> oh, yes, I do. The funny thing is, it's just in my head that that's who drinks Sprite. I have no idea. Because I don't. So, Trash Sprite, try again. Thank you for a stupid summer story. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So we have another cash or trash here. This one's a little bit different because we're going to be talking about retailers turning to viral TikTok moments for sales gold. And it's lots of really big brands, Lululemon, Gap, 
Gap actually uh, had such a viral moment that one of the hoodies that they just kind of popped up was picked up by an influencer and it became so popular that it was just brought back into rotation and they're going to release it again. So that actually brought back a completely new style. So what it's saying is that a lot of these brands are turning to these influencers instead of doing the advertising themselves. So they're kind of counting on influencers to pick up their goodies, wear them, and turn them into sensations. So they are laying off their own marketing on TikTok and really relying on these influencers. Now, these influencers are not going to be like April Margulies cousin, Kim Kardashian, like that level. They're more like micro and nano, which could be anywhere from like 100 to maybe uh, 1,000 or even 10 because those people have such engaged audiences that they do become influencers to those individuals. So I love this trend. It's not the influencers that are the ones that are basically like, here's me in a bathing suit looking over my shoulder and holding like a bag of tang or something. Like, I mean, it's, this is a little bit different. What do you think about this? Do you think this is cash or do you think this is trash or could trash? What's nice about it is that, I mean, if they're giving away product to influential teenagers who are going to wear it and then post it or whatever, in a way, it's a little bit more authentic. Yes. I guess doing it that way. I think my concern is more around the culture of everyone now thinks they're an influencer. Mm-hmm. But in a way, that is kind of where things have gone, where there's an equal weight between consumers and brands where there didn't used mm-hmm. to be. And so it kind of points out that I think it seems smart. I, I have cultural concerns about it, but I put it in the cash category in, in terms of what I think. Think about it like this, that I can probably convince you. Think about all of the models that are going to be used in these campaigns, um, whether it be on television, whether it be on, I mean, on print or on television, they're getting paid to endorse something so people can look to them as influencers. I think it's really good. I think it's exactly the same thing as advertising. And I think it's cool that, you can see what your friends are doing and like, oh, they're doing something cool. I like that. I want to try it out. I do that, but I don't think I would want to be the person that's influencing. I don't think that would be my thing. I wouldn't want everyone biting off your style, biting off of what you like. I think that's a little creepy, but like, I mean, I can't go out the door without my Lululemon skirt. So I support that trend. So I'm going to say cash for this. I like it. Business trends. What's the business trend of the day? Oh, you got it. Just this one, folks. Um, the resignation economy. Okay, doesn't that sound absolutely like annoying? When as soon as I heard the term resignation economy, I thought of four-hour work week and I immediately got angry. But the resignation <laughs> economy and how it's going to affect people getting back to work. So pretty much the resignation economy is after everyone's been like working from home and working remotely, it's kind of like, hey, I kind of like doing my own thing in my own space and not going into the office. So what's happening is a lot of people are moving back into offices and moving back into the day-to-day and they're saying, uh, no, I'm really enjoying my life now because I can see my kids more. I'm, I'm with my pets more. I can make my own schedule. I can work for virtually anyone from anywhere just by having a computer. Mm-hmm. So a lot of employers just like me are seeing that, employees are becoming very expensive when you're doing new hiring because 
everyone's like, I make my own hours, I make my own thing, I make my da da. And there's lots of different impacts. What do you think about this resignation economy? I think it was around before the pandemic. I have a unique take on it since our agency is virtual. Yeah. So most of the people that are working for Trust Relations fall into this category of wanting to do their own thing on their own time in their own space, maybe needing to be able to have the flexibility of where they work from because of their husband's jobs, maybe just wanting that in general because they also on the side are a model or they're a boxing instructor or they're a minister. Or I mean, that- what colorful lives your staff leads. <laughs> Are these real? Are you just making these up? I mean, these are really interesting. These are real. Oh, that's cool. I like that. I love these side hustles, minister. (laughs) So, I mean, it's like, I appreciate that because I have my own personal passions too. And on the side, I like to write music and I'm in a band and, you know, so I respect people having other passions beyond work that need tending to that are sort of like children. So sometimes they have actual children and that's the thing that needs the flexibility. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just this other thing that they have. And I think that it leads to a richer, fuller, more interesting person to your point, you know, your reaction's like, wait, what is this real? And it is real. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, clients are interested in talking to people that have that much dimension and depth too, right? Right. I can see that that's disruptive to a company that's not already built on that being foundational. So the culture does seem very challenging to other companies that are used to doing things in a more traditional way. The Go Agency is in 12 years of business. So when we started, having a virtual agency was looked down upon because we had to build up an authentic base. It's different now. If I were to start it again, Mm -hmm. I I would do more virtual. Mm -hmm. So we do have an office building. All of our employees are local, so they can go to the office. Mm -hmm. And I mean, obviously it's with these times, it's been a little bit different. We've been mostly virtual, but I've been moving into adding more virtual staff because I want to be able to, you know, start going to a larger pool because I found how easy this works. So for a company like me, it was cool until I had to start hiring people. And what I want to talk about is the other part of this. The people that have resigned, a lot of them are in food, beverage, bars. Like when I put up some entry-level jobs, I would say almost 80% of the people that had applied were waiters and waitresses. And that's not normally how it is, but they're just stopped and they're like, I can work from anywhere. I can do this. I can stay home. I can have, because a lot of people are worried about like having babies, getting pregnant. How am I going to do this? How are we going to do this with your schedule? And it's kind of like opening up their minds to all these different options. So I think it's going to hurt industries that require in-person, even though I do feel like they're always going to be there. And I think also it may create a lot of noise for people that are looking for quality, qualified candidates. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like a little bit of a downside. I think the upside for me is that as an agency, it's allowed, like you were talking about, the seeing the freedom that everybody has and that you can have it all in a way. As long as you can work your hours, get your job done and be responsible. But we were all kind of forced to do that. So, when, when, And when you spend time doing things you love, then I find that people are more present when they're yeah. there for work too, right? Because a lot of times if you force people to work long hours and they're not getting to do the thing that they're really passionate about in addition to work, not that they're not passionate about their work, but they're not getting to their book club or I mean, whatever it is, right. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is that, that fills them and gives them mm-hmm. a sense of purpose. Right. 
-hmm. I mean, if you don't have that, then I find that people start to kind of goof off, space off. Yeah, you get more hours out of them, but are they actually productive hours or is it better Mm -hmm. to just let them take a three hour break and go do whatever they're doing Mm -hmm. and then come back to it when they're fresh and mentally present again, you know? Mm It's an interesting concept to think about. I think that there's pluses and minuses, and I'm hoping that we can kind of find a healthy way through this because I don't think it's all the way one way or the other is the Mm -hmm. the answer. I think it's different strokes for different folks. Yeah, Hmm. I agree with that. And that was the only business trend that I packed in my suitcase today. What up? Enjoy. (laughs) It was great. Thanks. (laughs) Okay, so should we do the closing? Yeah, okay. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Hype Busters. And thank you to Tom for a great interview. Have questions about the news, companies, and conversations from the show this week? Yeah, probably, right? So you'll find our contact details in the show notes below. And our DMs are always open for the news, companies, and suggestions that you want to hear about next. And if you're looking for a chance to put your brand in the hot seat, we want to hear from you. All right. So... See y'all next time for more Real Talk on Strategic Communications with me, Chris, and her, April. April! And then Aeropostale? Aeropostale. Arab is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> I don't know. Amber, Com- Amber Crombie and Fitch. Don't say and... any more names. <laughs> okay, cut out all. Mart? <laughs> is it? Is it Target? I knew Lululemon. Okay. You did. You nailed that one. <laughs>